what a joy to welcome you in the precious name of our risen Savior, wherever you may be this morning watching this service. It's a beautiful Easter morning. I'm mindful of God's people, followers of Jesus Christ globally, rising this morning and celebrating the great resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that you've chosen to be with us here at Fellowship Bible Church this morning. And uh, have you heard that he is risen? He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We praise God for an empty tomb this morning. And we are so grateful for the opportunity just to celebrate that great occasion. I've invited the pastoral staff to be with me this morning. And uh, once again this week, as you observe uh, through your uh, televisions, your computers, uh, we will have the words of our hymns up on the screens, and we invite you to sing along. Pastor Mark, our youth pastor, is coming this morning, and let's begin with that great hymn that you heard in the prelude, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Let's, let's sing together. Christ the Lord is risen today, Alleluia. None of angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high, Alleluia. Sing ye hands and Before we go any further in our service this morning, we want to join our hearts together and bow our heads together in prayer. As a church scattered this morning, we join our hearts together 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen King. I have just a couple things that I want to mention. I think it's appropriate uh, this Easter morning for us as a church to just pause and to thank God for the fact that at this point, to my knowledge, there has been no one in our entire congregation that has tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. I think that's a praise. Uh, There are a scattering of positive tests throughout our community, uh, but so far, though we've had people who have been sick and have been tested, some who have been in isolation, no one that I know of has tested positive. Praise God for that. And let's pray that God would be merciful and bring an end to this thing and restore our normal schedules to us that we could gather together on Sunday mornings, get back to our jobs. Um, Many of you have been so kind to connect with us and to inquire as to whether or not you can be a help to those who would be in need. And at this point, we've had very little uh, response to the need as far as people um, having needs because of the COVID virus or loss of work, but we anticipate uh, the longer this goes, uh, the more likely that would be, and we will remember uh, those of you who've called us or emailed us, and we will reach out as needed. But thank you for being a loving body of believers, taking good care of one another and being concerned for one another. Um, I wanted to give another report on um, our IFCA Bible Church pastor, Bob Sheridan. Some weeks ago, we had announced that he had tested positive for the COVID-19 virus, and we wanted to ask you to pray and to uh, go before the Lord on his behalf and his church, Palos Community Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, The word yesterday evening was all good, and in fact, his wife uh, uh, Facebooked my sister, who who passed the message on to me, saying that, uh, Lord willing, the doctors were going to let him go home today. So sometime today will be a great day. He's still very weak, but he's recovering, and what joy there must be at the Palos Bible Church this morning as their shepherd and their pastor is being restored to health by God's mercy and his healing touch. We praise the Lord for that. We ask God to heal, and we need to thank God for the response to answered prayer there. I'm also mindful this morning of our many missionaries, uh, some who are here in the States, others who are uh, placed internationally, who are stuck, who are limited in their ability to do outreach because of the widespread nature of the COVID virus in 184 nations is my understanding. And so let's, re- let's remember to pray and lift up our missionaries as they come to mind. I've asked Pastor Mark to return to the pulpit here and, and lead us before God's throne of grace. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together as a congregation. Let's pray. Father, we come as grateful people, come giving thanks to you that you raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Lord Jesus, we come to you and give you thanks that no one took your life, but you gave it willingly and you raised from the dead. We give you thanks that through the resurrection that we now have hope, uh, that we have a living hope that you, Lord Jesus, are seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning, you are ruling the universe with your very word right now. And we give you praise for that. We thank you for the salvation that you've bestowed on us. We give you thanks for your continued sanctification in our life, conforming us um, to the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would continue that work. 
I pray that you would help us to be a thankful people, even though we are separated for a time, and that when we come together, it would be a joyous occasion. Um, Father, we want to pause and give you thanks for the healing of the pastor out west. Lord, we pray that you would continue your healing work in his life, and just so thankful for what you've done. Thank you for answering our prayers in the way that you've answered them. Uh, Father, we want to give you thanks that you have protected our church thus far uh, from contracting this virus, and we pray that you would continue to do that, if your will. And Father, uh, we, we want to lastly pray for our missionaries that are abroad, that are impacted um, uh, by this virus. We ask that you would help them, in spite of this, uh, to reach people uh, for the gospel's sake, that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of this uh, terrible circumstance, and that you would be exalted and that you would be lifted up. And so, again, we give you thanks. Thank you for our risen Christ and that we have life and hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's continue to lift up our risen Lord Jesus Christ with this wonderful song, He Arose, Christ Arose. Let's sing together.
hope you were blessed by that. But why don't you sit back and be blessed by this next song, He's Alive, that's sung by Tim Laymaster and accompanied by Del York and Buster Nicholson. Spent the night in sleeplessness and rose at every sound. Half in hopeless sorrow, half in fear the day would find the soldiers breaking through to drag us all away. Just before the sunrise, I heard something at the wall. The gate began to rattle. And a voice began to call I hurried to the window Looked down into the street Expecting swords and torches And the sound of soldiers' feet Well, there was no one there but Mary And so I went down to let her in John stood there beside me as she told us where she'd been She said they've moved him in the night None of us knows where The stone's been rolled away Now his body isn't there We both ran toward the garden And John ran on ahead We found the stone in the empty tomb Just the way that Mary said But the one just what I did not know and John believed a miracle but I just turned to go circumstance and speculation couldn't lift me very high cause I'd seen them crucify him and then I saw him die back inside the house again all the guilt and anguish came everything i promised him just added to my shame but at last it came to choices i denied i knew his name even if he was alive it wouldn't be the same filled with a strange and sweet perfume the light that came from everywhere drove shadows from the room Jesus stood before me with his arms held open wide I fell down to my knees just clung to him and cried well he raised me to my feet as I looked into his eyes, love was shining out from him like sunlight from the sky. Guilt in my 
disappeared in sweet release. And every beer I'd ever had just melted into peace. Ben for the women when they went to the tomb and found that he was alive. Early this morning I went out, it was just breaking day, I have an outdoor wood boiler that I put wood in early in the morning and the birds were singing and I just stood there in the edge of the church woods and just tried to imagine what it must have been like for those ladies in their grief and in their uncertainty to go to the tomb and then to find out that he was alive. He's alive He's alive and I'm forgiven, praise God. I believe there was a little bit of technical difficulty on the live stream on that song, and we apologize for that. I think the words came through, and regardless, we celebrate our risen Savior for sure. I'm so thankful that you've joined us today. Maybe you've just linked in. Uh, we're in our Easter morning service here at Fellowship Bible Church. I want to remind you that each Wednesday evening, we're live streaming as well, 7 p.m., prayer time from the pulpit, and I trust that'll be a blessing and an encouragement to you. Stay in touch with our church website. Whether you're a part of our congregation or not, you'll find helpful materials there for all ages as we continue through this COVID-19 uh, time where we're unable to gather and we're sheltering in place. We want to be a blessing. We want to be an encouragement. Uh, make sure that you contact us if you have any needs. We would love to help you. Now let's uh, turn our hearts and minds back to the Easter story as Pastor Everett, our associate pastor, comes and reads out of Matthew's account the story of the resurrection. Thank you, Pastor Van. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, I hope that you're having a wonderful morning and no better way than to turn to God's Word and remember the account of our risen Savior recorded in the book of Matthew. So follow with me, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. He, his Appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Sing with us as we sing Living Hope. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, forever Jesus Christ my living Lord Alleluia praise the one who set me free Alleluia death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name Jesus Christ Out of 
silence. The roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Then came the morning and sealed the promise. The buried body began to Thank you, Pastor Mark, for singing along. Trust that you were able to sing along in your living room or your kitchen, wherever you are this morning. We do welcome you all across the community as you engage with us electronically. Uh, We recognize that these are strange days, and and this is not the way that we wanted to celebrate Easter. We always have such great joy and delight in gathering on Easter Sunday morning, and usually the chairs are just filled in all three services, and we raise the roof singing together about our risen Lord. I trust that in, in some special way, uh, in your solitude, in your uh, gathering as a family with lesser distractions, uh, that perhaps in some way uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we've reflected together in song and as we turn to our Bibles now uh, to think through the ramifications of that great event, I trust that in some way, the Spirit of God will encourage you in your worship today, and that in the future we might look back on this season and recognize all of the different things that God has been doing, and even on an Easter Sunday like this, and just think, none of us, none of us have ever had an Easter like this, where we're in isolation, where we're in sheltering uh, down in our homes and unable to gather, and uh, we just want to keep our eyes on Christ and keep the main thing the main thing. And I just trust that you'll have a great joy in your heart because we serve a risen Savior. Before we turn to our Bibles, I hope you have your Bible nearby, maybe a pen and a paper. Maybe you've taken time to uh, copy down the notes, copy out the notes that are available to you at our website. Uh, Regardless, just make yourself comfortable. I know some of you are. You're still in your pajamas and your robes. Uh, Some of you are going to not want to give that up in the future. Um, But uh, you have your coffee nearby. Now grab your Bible Uh, Before we turn to God's word, let's just bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, you've been good to us. You've been gracious and kind, even in this strange season of the virus. This caught us by surprise. We, We didn't anticipate this. And now here, weeks later, we are still meeting, scattered in our homes. And yet, would you please, through your Holy Spirit, unite us in our spirit and unite us in our hearts that the Word of God 
would minister today in our homes and wherever we are as we're listening in. Father, would you make in a, in a very special way the resurrection of Jesus Christ very real to us? I pray that your Holy Spirit will take the Word of God, minister to the people of God, and bring conviction even to our hearts. For those who might be skeptics concerning the resurrection, I pray that this morning will be a good time of evaluation and examining the Scripture and recognizing that though we accept it by faith, it's not a foolish faith, this belief in an empty tomb and in a risen Savior. Minister to your people now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for some of you, it, it might be your worst nightmare, and it's not something you really look back upon fondly, but to begin with this morning, uh, let's imagine that we're back in high school and we're sitting in history class. Um, and let's imagine that the project for the day as the teacher begins the class is to have as a group exercise, as the class discussion, and the teacher's up on the marker board with her marker, and she wants us to suggest what are some of the defining moments in history that altered the world? What are some events that can be named on a date and a time and a place that from then on it could be described that there was a before and after from that moment? Somebody in the back of the class raises their hand and they say, um, uh, how about the printing press? And I think the teacher would write that on the board um, when that German printer, Johann Gutenberg, invented in 1440 the printing press. You could say there's a before and an after how the printing press changed and transformed the world. Somebody else, um, maybe with a little more religious background or uh, in a Christian school, they might raise their hand and they might say, how about the Protestant Reformation. The teacher would write that on the board. October 31st, 1517. A young priest, driven by his own Bible study, recognizes that justification comes and right standing with a holy God comes only through the finished work of Christ by faith alone, no works. And so he writes a list of 95 uh, theses of, of ways that he disagrees with the, with the Roman church. And he nails it to the door there at Wittenberg Castle. From then on, the world was a different place. Some might be thinking about American history this morning, and, and you're thinking about uh, the actual date was April 19th, 1775, when a, a group of citizen soldiers loaded their muzzle-loading rifles, and they hunkered down, and they watched the British approach over a bridge at Concord, and someone hollered out, wait until you see the whites of their eyes, boys. And there they unloaded their rifles out the business end. And the great American Revolution began, and the world has not been a, the same place ever since. There's a before, and there's an after. Somebody else who's interested in World War II history would raise their hand and, and they would say, you have to put December 7th, 1941 up on the board because when the Japanese destroyed in Pearl Harbor much of the American Pacific fleet and the naval fleet was crippled, 
uh, they have to say that that drawing the United States into the great war there of World War II changed the course of history. There was a before and there was an after. Well, we could go on. We could make a long list. There are indeed throughout history these events that, that from that day on, nothing was ever the same. I wonder if it ever occurred to you. I don't know the exact date. It, it must have been uh, in, the, in the early to mid-30s A.D., on a cobblestone road, a man on a horse with an entourage was struck down by a bright light in heaven, and this jihadist named Saul, who loathed and hated Christianity, was knocked to the ground. He was blinded by a bright light, and a voice from heaven spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I have called you to be a light to the Gentiles. And that day, the mighty Apostle Paul, whose name was changed later from Saul to Paul, became a follower of Jesus Christ, a devout follower. He became such a significant role player in the early church, and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he also penned much of our New Testament. You have to say that the conversion of the Apostle Paul from a, from a Christ-hating church Christian persecutor to a mighty follower of Jesus Christ transformed the known world. The world would not be the same had the Apostle Paul not encountered the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, on our marker board, we could write for sure uh, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ itself has to be the most transforming event that history has ever known. It was, by the way, a authentic historical event. It was a real moment in time, as Pastor Everett read earlier there was a morning when women went to the tomb carrying their spices, concerned about their beloved one being treated properly after death and finding with the earth trembling, even in the morning with aftershocks of earthquake, that the stone had been rolled away. I do not believe that the earthquake rolled the stone. I believe that God miraculously rolled the stone away, and there the angel met them. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. There's a before and there's an after, and the world has never been the same. This morning, I want us to talk about that resurrection power. I want us to do this by doing a brief study on the life and the testimony and the ministry of the mighty Apostle Paul. Let's return to what I was referencing just a few minutes ago, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me. I hope you have your Bible there. If not, just jump up and go get it. Nobody will see you except in your own family there. Uh, Acts chapter 9 is where we have the actual account of the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Damascus. Uh, his conversion testimony, by the way, is recounted at least two other times in the book of Acts. It is a fascinating testimony. He was a Pharisee. He was a believer in the Old Testament, but he did not believe that this Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to heal the blind and, and, and heal the lame and who could raise the dead, he did not believe that this Jesus was deity. He did not believe that he was the Messiah. Saul, this 
knowledgeable, well-educated Pharisee of Pharisees hated the reality that was being talked about that Jesus had risen from the dead and that there were followers of him who were now being called Christians about this time. I want you to look with me and let's read his conversion account. It's a fascinating testimony of how God got a hold of him. Uh, The first thing I want you to know about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the Apostle Paul is that it was the defining moment of his life. For Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the mighty Apostle Paul, the defining moment of his life is his encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. You'll recall, if you flip the page back to the end of chapter 7 and and chapter 8, we have there the account of the first martyr of the early church. Peter and James and John had been preaching Other disciples were following Christ. Uh, There in Jerusalem, the church was growing. It had not spread yet. In fact, the Apostle Paul would be the main source of church growth from now on. But there in Jerusalem, the church was growing, but persecution had reared its ugly head, and they had gathered around Stephen when he was preaching, and they picked up bricks and rocks and sticks, and they beat him to death there in the street, this precious disciple of Jesus. Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And when we read that story, uh, we, are, we read uh, in verse uh, 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. When Stephen was preaching Christ, they, they screeched out loud to cover his sound, and they put their fingers in their ears. They refused to hear that Jesus was the Messiah. They hated that concept that Jesus was God in the flesh. They did not believe it. They expected a Messiah, they just did not believe this Galilean was the Christ. They cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, they rushed together at him. And then verse 58 of chapter 7 of Acts, Then they cast him out of the city and and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is, he was a young man who had studied at the feet of a, a teacher named Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was raised up to, to memorize and to follow the law of the Old Testament. He was a very religious man, very religious. But he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And he approved of the stoning of Stephen. He was a leader of this persecution. Let's read the final Verses of chapter 7, they are precious to us. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. His final words. And falling to his knees, his final words then were, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's that beautiful euphemism for the death of a believer in the New Testament. He fell asleep in Jesus. It's not soul sleep. It's just the reality that one day, uh, though the soul and body are separated in death and, and the spirit and soul are with the Lord, the body will one day be resurrected or awakened from the ground. And look what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They wept over him. Their dear brother, they picked up his broken body. They wrapped it in claws, no doubt, and they buried it with tears streaming down their cheeks. The church was highly impacted on this occasion. Many of them scattered, never to see one another again. There was no end to that virus. But Saul was ravaging the church. There it is, verse 3 of chapter 8. Here's the, here's the testimony of the, the apostle Paul. He was one who hated the church, who hated Christianity, who hated the name of Jesus Christ. And it says he was ravaging the church And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. They bashed down doors. They grabbed people roughly by their clothing, by their hair. They bound them. They dragged them off to prison for one simple reason. They were followers of Jesus Christ. What an incredible time this was. Well, this continued. What he would do, he would go from town to town, Paul would, Saul would, and he would meet with the rabbis and, and the Jewish priests who were not believers in Christ. They were remaining under Judaism and under the law, and they refused to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean, had risen from the dead, that he was the Messiah promised in the prophetic passages of the Old, scriptures, of the Old Testament scriptures. And so Saul would go from, from town to town. He would go to the synagogue, and there he would meet with the priest, and the priest would give him a list of all of the people who were practicers of Judaism, who had practiced Judaism, but had left the synagogue and were now followers of Christ. And, and under the instruction of these priests, he would get direction and he would find out where they lived and he would go and there he would just wreak havoc. He would bash in their doors, drag them off to prison. Let's t- return to scripture and let's just read the account. It's Acts chapter 9 and this is the day that everything changes This is the point where you can say there's a before and there's an after. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, Acts 9-1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, Uh, That's what they called those who followed Christ back then. They were followers of the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and here it is, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Uh, This vision, this bright light that he saw... This voice of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the master of the universe, the Nazarene, risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, 
reveals himself to Saul, knocks him to the ground. It is such a stunning moment that he's blinded. He cannot see after that for three days at least. And it took away his appetite. and He couldn't even drink or, or eat or he probably could barely rest. They take him into Damascus and there was a disciple at Damascus, verse 10, named Ananias. You know, God has his people everywhere, doesn't he? And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. So, so Saul is, is so uh, dramatically impacted by the voice from heaven that he is now praying. He's, he's seeking out from God what is this. He's sorting out with a discernment what God is doing in his life. He recognizes now that Jesus is the Christ. He said, there in Tarsus, there's a man named Saul, for behold, he's praying, verse 12, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in. So God gave Saul a vision of Ananias coming to him to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Well, you can't blame Ananias, can you? I mean, God tells him in a vision. Now remember, the New Testament scripture was not written at all yet. All right, And the gospel accounts hadn't even been written yet. The Old Testament was point of reference for them. Uh, it was completed. The writings of the prophets, the writings of Moses, the Psalms, the wisdom literature of Solomon. But the New Testament was not revealed to them yet. It had not been written down yet. They're living out the history of the New Covenant and the New Testament in its fledgling birth. And so Ananias, you can't blame him. He's a follower of Christ. He has heard of Saul, and he doesn't want to go to him. Say, wait a minute, Lord, that guy is dangerous. I'll be putting my life on the line. But God says, no, I've already given him a vision. He already knows that you're coming. And, and furthermore, Ananias, I have a call on his life. What a profound reality that God can take someone like the brutal Saul of Tarsus and convert him into the mighty Apostle Paul the lover of the church, churches, the, the lover of Christ, the writer of Scripture. All of that really is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's stay with it. Um, verse 15 again, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he has, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Saul went from being someone who induced suffering on believers in Christ to someone who spent his entire life suffering for the cause of the gospel. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. 
Uh, well, if you're following along in our outline, you, you know that what we are doing here is we are examining the impact of the resurrection upon the Apostle Paul. Here he still saw, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean in the life of the Apostle Paul? First of all, we, we have to acknowledge after reading chapter 9 of Acts that it is the defining moment of his life from one who persecuted followers of Christ to becoming the greatest follower of Christ of that day. The second thing I want you to see, um, well, he was committed to the destruction of Christianity, we can see, but he was converted, he was converted by an encounter with Christ from one who is committed to the destruction of Christianity to becoming someone who is converted by an encounter with Christ himself, the risen Christ. Secondly, I want you to see that, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the Apostle Paul was the driving message then of his ministry. It was the driving message of his ministry. Look what it says immediately. Picking it up back in Acts 9, verse 19, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days then, verse, the end of verse 19, he was with the disciples at Damascus. So he's recovering. He has his eyesight back. Ananias is ministering to him. He's being introduced to the believers there. They are stunned at the conversion of the apostle Paul. And look at verse 20 says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. <laughs> and think about that. Just a few days before he was en route to Damascus to destroy the name of Christ in any way he could and capture and persecute any follower of Christ, he has an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus face to face. It knocks him to the ground. It blinds him. It makes him speechless. It takes away his appetite. He's in prayer for the next three days. Ananias comes and ministers to him. And as soon as his health and strength and sight are restored, it says immediately he went down to the synagogue and he began to debate and argue and teach the Old Testament scriptures and show them that Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean, was the Christ indeed. It says, and all who heard him were amazed, and they said, verse 21, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the, this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, verse 22, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Listen, the greatest transformative moment, the most life-impacting moment in the life of Saul of Tarsus, beginning this transformation into the Apostle Paul, was an encounter with the risen Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ for the Apostle Paul was, number one, the defining moment of his life. Number two, it was the driving message of his ministry. Immediately he gets up and he begins to preach Christ, that he's the Messiah. All of this authenticated by the reality found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul becomes a believer. I want to take now just a minute, and I want us to bounce off some scriptures. We're going to look in our Bibles at a variety of scriptures, but I want to, I want to continue this theme of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to the Apostle Paul. It's the defining moment of his life. It's the driving message of his ministry. I want you to see then that it is, thirdly, the doctrinal content of his writing. You see... 
after his conversion, Saul begins to preach Christ through the Holy Spirit. God begins to minister him. He goes on his missionary journeys, and there he begins to plant churches all over this part of Asia and present-day Turkey. That he begins to plant churches, and, and everywhere he goes, he leads people to Christ. He lifts up the resurrected Christ. Christianity begins to spread in a greater way than ever before through the ministry of Saul, who became Paul. And every time he leaves a church and, and looks back upon that church, he thinks of things that he wants to instruct them in. And so he begins to write, and, and I believe of, of most of the time he probably knew that he was writing from God. He was writing under the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's hard to know if he really recognized that his writings would be bound in a book and held for us along with the Old Testament scriptures. He certainly knew it was the Word of God because when he wrote the churches, he would say, you need to listen to what I'm writing. It is the Word of God to you. And he was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he would sit sometimes at a desk in house arrest, sometimes in a dungeon, a dungeon prison. And there he would write on his parchments with a quill and an ink pen, uh, often through a scribe. Often he would, he would dictate and these letters would be written. And what I want us to see now is what did he write? What did he write to inform and instruct the churches? What was the theme of his writing? What is it that continually crops up? Well, we know that the Apostle Paul's writings are difficult to understand. Peter says that. In his own writing, he said he acknowledged that much of what Paul writes is difficult to understand. He wrote deep and heavy theology to the churches. But praise God for the Apostle Paul and what he means to our Bible and how much he wrote. Now, this is not exhaustive in any way. What I want to do, without bogging down, is I want us to just do some touch and goes through Scripture, and I want to just suggest uh, just a running list that is not even close to being exhaustive of how the resurrection was at the heart of the writing and teaching ministry of the Apostle Paul. So he goes from being a missionary of destruction against those who follow Christ, to being knocked down and being revealed to him that Jesus Christ is real. He now becomes a leader in the church, and now he's writing Scripture. He's writing to, to, to inform and to instruct the churches how to live the Christian life, how to be followers of Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to have your sin forgiven? What does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? And so he begins to write, and, and so uh, let's just, just grab our Bibles and let's just show some examples of how this shows up in his doctrinal writing. Let's go to Romans 10, for example, and let's, let's look here at an illustration of how uh, the resurrection and the teaching of the resurrection so impacted Saul that it permeates all of his writing and his theological instruction. And the first point we want to make is that the resurrection is at the heart of the doctrine of salvation. You don't get the doctrine of salvation correct. You don't understand what it means to have your sin forgiven. You don't understand what it means to be a new creation in Christ if you don't understand the resurrection. Let me give you one example. This is in Romans chapter 10. He's arguing throughout this whole book, and it's a deep, heavy writing, written book on justification by faith in Christ alone, not a dead Christ 
Saul believed that he had not risen from the dead, but Paul knew because he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ that our faith is in a resurrected Christ, a living Christ. Look at verse 9 and 10. These are relatively familiar words. Words, I think they're on your screen right now. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? That God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That word justified is a big church word. We're going to look at it in just a minute. Because justification itself is is a word that is couched in the resurrection doctrine. So here we are. We are. We are looking and examining at the writings, the message of the Apostle Paul. And we're seeing that the doctrinal content of his writing is laced with the truths of the resurrection. First of all, our salvation is contingent. The resurrection of Christ. You know, it brought to my mind when I was looking over my notes this morning, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Um, Let's just take just a second. I don't think you're going anywhere fast, um, but we'll not drag this out. But I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that even in these familiar verses, there is a presence of the doctrine of the resurrection. He writes, um, well, let's pick it up at, at verse 4. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice the language of a deadness, we were dead in trespasses, made us, look at here it is, alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. That is a reference to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, that it's transformative. That even as Christ rose from the dead, we are identified spiritually with that resurrection. He goes on to say at verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Grace is a gift from God. It's not works. And he raised us up with him. There, look at, there's resurrection language. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him. So in the mind of God, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are so identified with the death, the burial, and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ that in the way that God raised Christ from the dead, he raises believers spiritually identified with Christ. This is not easy to understand, but that's what the text says. And he, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful verse. That positionally, if your faith and trust by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation is genuine, and the blood of Christ has cleansed you from all sin, that God has justified you, declared you righteous, and he has positioned you seated in the heavenlies. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but somehow God has like bleachers in heaven And spiritually speaking, all of the believers in Christ are already there. Or maybe you could think of it as a trophy case. And that these trophies of the resurrection, these trophies of the redemptive work of Christ are already positioned on display in the heavenly, spiritually speaking, in the mind of God. So that in the coming ages he might show... There it is, a demonstration, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Let's, let's make sure we understand the language. 
for salvation is a gift of God. That's grace, receiving something you don't deserve. You have been saved through faith. Listen to me. This is the only way you can get to heaven. This is the only way that you can experience salvation. Listen, you, you don't do it through ritualistic religion. You don't do it by, by somehow re repetitious prayers. You don't do it by somehow calling on saints to pray for you. It is a personal thing between you and God. When your faith is in Jesus Christ, by grace, he saves you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. There it is. It doesn't get any clearer than that. It is a gift of God. Look at here. It continues on. Verse 9. Not a result of works. That would be the things that I do. Repetitious prayers. Ritualistic services, praying to saints, putting money in the offering plate, somehow thinking that my generous giving will impress God. Those are works. The Old Testament tells us that, that, that our works of righteousness, though as good of deeds as they might be, in the presence of our awesome holy God, appear as filthy rags. That's humbling. That's scary. And we've got to get this straight. That because Jesus rose from the dead, he is the authentic savior of the world. And only by putting our faith and trust in him personally, uh, the theological way we say that is appropriating it, counting it to be true for ourselves. It's a gift that we receive. You don't pay for it. You just reach out and take it. Not a result of works, verse 9, so that no one would boast. I just wanted you to see, even in these passages on salvation that we often have memorized and that we quote, there's the resurrection language. We were dead. Now we're alive. We were risen with Christ. We are seated with Christ. He is not a savior in a tomb. He has risen again. Well, we kind of bogged down on that one. We're going to have to skip through some of the rest and just reference them. What we're talking about right now in our message is how the doctrine the doctrinal content in the writings of the Apostle Paul are founded and laced with this truth of the resurrection. Sometimes it's not obvious. You, it, it's what, it, it is what, it's the fabric that holds it together. You might think of it as rebar in concrete. It's always there and it holds everything together. And if it wasn't there, everything would fall apart. And that's the doctrine of the resurrection. It, it is present in our salvation experience. I mean, let's just uh, let's flip back to Romans 1.4 and let's just quickly, we're not even going to be able to look up all these passages, but the notes are on our website. You can pull the notes and you can do a little Bible study on your own and, and you test it and see if it's not true what I'm saying, that the resurrection, the writing of the resurrection and the, the truths of the resurrection of Jesus, Christ, of Jesus Christ create the doctrinal content of the, of the writings of the Apostle Paul. I want you to see a wonderful verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And there he says uh, that Jesus uh, declare uh, concerning his son, verse 3, God concerning his son, that would be Jesus, verse 3 of Romans 1, who was descended from David. He was of the lineage of David according to the flesh. In his biological fleshly line, Jesus was a son of David and it was prophesied to be true. And he was, though, declared, verse 4, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his 
resurrection from the dead. So that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in being involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ was that it declared with power that Jesus was the Son of God. Therefore, as Paul wrote to Rome, one of the very first things he does is he uses the resurrection of Jesus Christ to authenticate the deity of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection was at the heart of Paul's teaching on salvation and on the deity of Christ. And then on justification. Uh, Letter C, on justification. This is Romans chapter 4. And look what he says in verse 24. Let's pick it up with verse 23. He's using Abraham in this passage as an illustration of faith. Salvation by faith alone. No works. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake, Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also, Paul says, this is Romans chapter 4, verse 24, it will be counted to us who believe in him, look at this, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's not stop there. Let's pick up 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I take it to be that this would not count if Jesus were dead and in a grave. But because he rose from the dead, he authenticated the reality, his deity, Romans 1.4. Therefore, even in the doctrine of justification, This truth of the resurrection runs right through it. He was raised for our justification to show God that he had accomplished the work and it was all finished. He paid the debt of our sin on the cross. He sealed it all with his resurrection. Now let's just ask ourselves really quickly, what does that word justified mean? We've run into it a couple times already this morning. You need to understand that justification is a, it's a really fantastic word. It is a theological term, but in Scripture, when it pertains to our salvation, you need to understand that it is, a, it is representative of a one-time act of God. It is a declaration made by God Himself. It happens when we run to the cross, and there we recognize that our sin was substituted on Jesus, and that his blood cleansed us from all our sin, and by faith, not by any works, we personally, not through any other person, we personally acknowledge to a holy God that we are sinners and that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin, and our salvation is received by the righteousness of Christ being identified with us after our sin in God's mind is identified with Christ. And that great exchange is made at the cross by grace through faith. And so when we acknowledge our sinfulness, it might be, some of you can remember that moment. I think of one of my, one of my good brothers, dear brothers here at the church, and he was telling me after an evening of sinning, he was on his way home and it was the wee hours of the morning and he sat in his car at a traffic light and became overwhelmed with his sinfulness began to remember his mother praying for him and kneeling at her bed. So when he got home, he kneeled at his bedside and he cried out to God the best he could. He acknowledged his sinfulness before a holy God. The Holy Spirit began to work in his life and bring life and the the finished work of Christ on the cross for his sin was counted, credited to his account at that moment. And in the heavenlies, In the throne room of God, God the judge, God in his role as a just judge, looked at that man 
And he said, you're a sinner, but the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you now from all sin. And as it were, the judge of heaven puts down his gavel and he declares that man righteous. That is what it means to be justified. To be declared at one time, once and for all, by the judge of heaven to be righteous. Not by any merit of your own. It's just the righteousness of Christ is now acknowledged to be counted good for your salvation. And God declares it, and it's good for all eternity. And from that moment on, you are seated in the heavenlies as a trophy of his grace. And all of that is made possible and sealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, Romans 4, but but for our also this counted counted unto him as righteousness is for our sake also is what he's arguing in the passage and it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord you believe in God who raised Jesus so here we are we're trying to do a brief study and it's not getting so brief here uh, we'll pick it up uh, we're we're arguing that once the apostle Paul was dramatically transformed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he began through the Holy Spirit to write scripture that these, the doctrine of the resurrection is laced throughout all of his writings. Let me just click off the list here a little bit. The resurrection was at the heart of his teaching, letter A, on salvation, if you're keeping notes. Letter B, it's, it's at the heart of his teaching on the deity of Jesus Christ. And I'm just giving you samplings there's much more in Scripture about this. Letter C, for our justification. Letter D, for our sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing work of God in my life, conforming me to the image of Christ, where the sinful things I used to do, I don't do that anymore because of the resurrection power of Christ that is at work in me. I say no to sin. The Holy Spirit is in me, and I have the power to let the Holy Spirit lead me, and I'm I'm being sanctified. I'm, I'm separating from sin. That's all contingent to resurrection. Romans 6, 1 through 11, you can read it. The intercessory role of Christ is another, where he's seated in the heavenlies, making intercession for us. Romans 8 says it's just one example. The intercessory role of Christ in the life of the believer is based upon the fact that he's a risen Savior. How about the authority of Scripture? Let's go, let's turn to this one. This is 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the great resurrection chapter. And uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 in our Bibles. And uh, let's look at what we have here based upon the authority of Scripture. This would be our bibliology. This would be our doctrine of Scripture. I want you to see that the, the doctrine of the resurrection touches this as well. Look what it says in, as he begins this great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 15, he says, um, let's just pick it up with verse 1. Now I, re, now I would remind you, this is the Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, who was knocked down on the road to Damascus, writing the Corinthian believers. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is the gospel that is saving us. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. Now that he's gone, he's writing a letter. As long as you haven't left what I taught you, you understand, you've accepted Christ, you're born again. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance, what I also received. Here it is, look. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
verse 4, that he was buried, and here it is, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Listen, that is a statement about the authority and the power of Scripture. In other words, you could argue from that verse that Jesus had to raise from the dead. He had to rise again because the Scripture said he would, and the very authority and the integrity of Scripture is based on them coming true. So it kind of works together. On the one hand, Christ rose from the dead, therefore giving credence to the veracity of Scripture. On the other hand, he had to rise from the dead because the Scripture said so. And so the Apostle Paul is arguing that the resurrection is one of the dynamics that, that shows us the truthfulness, the veracity, the, the, the reality that Scripture is 100% accurate. And so we have the very authority of Scripture tied in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the return of Christ for His church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where the Apostle Paul is writing to Thessalonian believers. You'll have to read some of this uh, later on your own time. It's excellent passages of Scripture to see, and it's obvious. And he he tells the Thessalonian believers, "I, I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about the reality of the return of Christ. And notice what he says almost immediately about those who have died in Christ, what's going to happen to their body. He says immediately, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In in the very same way that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe in the return of Christ for those who have died in Christ. And he he will bring them back in soul and spirit and reunite their bodies, risen, transformed prepared for celestial living, that which is sown in mortality and disgrace is raised in immortality, and it's all reflective of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The return of Christ for his church is at the heart. The doctrine of the resurrection is at the heart of the teaching of the Apostle Paul in our New Testament of the return of Christ for his church. Finally, the, the very reality closely related to what I just said. That's the return of Christ. The resurrection of the dead is likewise tied in with the resurrection of Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians back in chapter 15. And there he talks about the fact that if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we have no resurrection. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, we have no faith. Our faith is vain. And we're of all people most miserable. It's all tied in with the resurrection teaching of the Apostle Paul. We're looking at the greatest moment that the world has ever known. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Parallel to that has to be one of the greatest moments the world has ever known with identifiable before and after is this time when the Apostle Paul was converted as Saul on the road to Damascus. It was the defining moment of his life. Secondly, it was the driving message of his ministry. Thirdly, it was the doctrinal content of his writing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is everywhere in his writing. But I want to conclude this morning. I want to challenge our thinking and I want to challenge our hearts to recognize that this concept of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ was the deepest longing of the Apostle Paul's heart. We pick this up in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. Philippians 3 verse 10, the Apostle Paul is is arguing here um, or writing to the Philippian believers showing the contrast in his life of what he used to be 
and what he is now and how when he kept the law and when he was a Pharisee of Pharisees that all of his good works piled up into one useless pile. This is where it says in the old King James Version that, uh, well, in the ESV, this is verse 8, and, and he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In the old King James Bible, you'll recall that the word there is dung, manure. It's just to be thrown out or made into fertilizer. All these works, they're worthless. Compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. I believe what he has in mind here is the road to Damascus. That before he didn't know, before when he didn't know Christ, he was driven by good works. He was driven to be religious. He was zealous for good works to please the Judaizers. He didn't recognize that Jesus was the Christ. And then his life was transformed. And then from then on, it was all about knowing Christ and making him known. And to be found in him, verse 9 of Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that was futile. But that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There it is. That is so important. The righteousness that saves us, that comes from God, is, comes only and is dependent upon our faith in God. And Paul then went on in verse 10, look what he says, I think it's on your screen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that ultimately by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The idea isn't that he was driven by works, but that the, that the ongoing ministry of Christ in him would be so real that his salvation was evident. And he was assured of, of a resurrection with Christ. I got hung up on that little phrase in verse 10. Paul, the mighty apostle Paul, whose life was transformed, it was the defining moment of his life was the resurrection encounter with the risen Savior, was the driving force of his ministry. It was, it was all that he preached about. It was embedded in all of his writings and yet his testimony late in his ministry is that I might know him, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Well, what's Paul saying? I think that clearly he's talking about in contrast to all of the works that he once did to try to please God mean nothing now except for his relationship with Christ. Listen, our Bibles, our worship... All that we do in our Christian life is so that we might know Christ, that we might emulate Christ, that we would follow Christ, that we would be in love with Christ. Remember John in the seven letters in the book of Revelation warned the church at Ephesus that they had lost their first love. The first love of believers in Christ is Christ himself. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that I might know him. We need to wrap up, but... If you're following along in the notes, you'll notice that I suggested there are three areas that this resurrection power manifests itself that Paul must have been talking about. First of all, the power of the resurrection, would you agree with me? Letter A, removes all doubt. It removes all doubt. We were already in Romans chapter 4 
talking about our justification and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is all contingent. The realities of the ministry of Christ on the cross confirmed and affirmed and sealed by his resurrection as true. And it takes away all doubt. Now, I wonder this morning, uh, have you been afraid through this COVID virus season? And one of the reasons that I see people all bundled up as they go to the grocery store and, and people, boy, people really don't like it when you're in the grocery store and you bring your cart too close to them and you're being disrespectful and, and I don't want to be disrespectful to anyone and it is a serious thing to get very sick and no one wants to get really sick. But I think something that has swept our country that I think is palpable is the fear of death. But the power of the resurrection removes all doubt of our salvation. Secondly, it regulates our fear. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Now let me just read those verses very quickly as we wrap up. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your victory? O death or grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you doubt your salvation today? Do you worry if you're going to heaven? Are you afraid of dying? The resurrection removes all doubt of our salvation. The resurrection regulates our fear. It's not that in our humanity we don't fear getting dramatically sick or the process of dying, or death itself. But it takes the sting away. It takes the force of death away when we know Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life. Remember when, when Jesus went to the cemetery, to the graveside of his dear friend Lazarus, and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, met him there. Remember what he said to them? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me Though he die, yet shall he live. You see, it, it takes away the sting. It regulates our fear of death. Thirdly, it realigns our priorities. We're talking about resurrection power. What does it do for us? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen as I read, or they're on your screen maybe. If then, look at here it is. If then you have been raised with Christ. What is that? The idea there is really of a co-resurrection. That when you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, as I referenced earlier, the Heavenly Father identifies you with the death, the burial, spiritually, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been raised with Christ to newness of life, Romans 6 says. Seek then the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died... There's that death, burial, resurrection talk. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ realigns our priorities. I no longer have a mind for this earth. I'm to set my mind on things above. He says, seek you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. You know who I think this message is for today? I think on the one hand, it's, it's for believers in Christ who would have to admit that you live a very 
uh, blah Christian life, powerless. In fact, if you told yourself the truth, and if people were to follow you around and examine your life and watch the way you live and your lifestyle and your thought life and your entertainment life, that you would look very much like an unredeemed person of the world. You have never put your mind on things above. Listen, when Paul says that I may know Christ, it's, it's about be Christ being the passion of my life and that I may know the power of his resurrection. It's about passion and power. And we now have the ability to become like Christ in our sanctification. We do not have to be mediocre in our Christianity. We do not have to... Some of you are sick and tired of living a defeated Christian life. Listen, everything you need has already been done for you. And it has been declared in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. You have, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, every capacity to make decisions that are right and pleasing to God. You no longer have to make excuses. You no longer have to say, well, I just can't do that. That is not true. If you've been risen with Christ, you have the ability to know the power of the resurrection and to walk in an obedient life. It removes all doubt of your salvation. You can be confident in your relationship with God. It regulates all the fear of death. You don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen in this world. We're heaven bound because of the resurrection of Christ. And it realigns all priorities. No longer am I consumed with the things of this world. But my mind is on Christ. For I have died and my life is now hidden with Christ. And I have a power. And that power of the resurrection means that I have the power to walk in the truth. To obey the truth. To live for Christ in this world. I would suggest that the most important event in history was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would suggest that close to it is the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus because out of his ministry through the Holy Spirit, we understand more about the resurrection than through any other writer. Indeed, the defining moment of Paul's life was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning as we conclude, what is the defining moment of your life? What is the defining moment of your life? The resurrection of Jesus Christ in bodily form ascended into heaven, today present at the right hand of the Father, and at the timing of the Father will return for his church. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb changed everything. I would suggest that the most important thing about you this morning is what are you doing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You're going to mock it? You're going to scoff it? You're going to make up all kinds of stolen body theories? I would suggest that you study the life and writings of the Apostle Paul and notice his testimony of transformation because he had an encounter with the risen Christ. Like the Apostle Paul, Transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your life today can be transformed by the resurrection of Christ. Don't waste the hour. It's Easter Sunday. What a great moment to bow our heads right now. And as I pray, you pray, and let's embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the realities of it for our salvation. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are humbled today, recognizing that 
at just the right time, you sent the Lord Jesus to be born of Mary. And then at, on your timetable, three years of public ministry, demonstrating his deity, uh, especially when he rose from the dead, authenticating the scripture, authenticating his message, authenticating his deity. Father, thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ and that because Jesus Christ is alive, we can live today as well. That we can face fear of the future because of resurrection power. We have the capacity to walk in the truth with confidence by faith because of resurrection power. Father, would you pull hearts towards yourself? Would you open blind eyes? Would you help those of us who are trapped in sin to find release and forgiveness at the cross? and to engage at a whole new level in our relationship with you in Christ, experiencing a growing relationship of knowing Christ and experiencing the power of the resurrection in our lives. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his great testimony, and I thank you for this morning together studying your word. May your Holy Spirit continue to use it as you see fit. We are grateful for an empty tomb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we go, let's sing a hymn. Uh, there, years ago, the Gaithers wrote a hymn called Because He Lives. Let's sing that together. We'll sing all three stanzas. If you need to go, go ahead and go. But we'll sing together as we conclude this Easter service this morning. God sent His Son. They called him Jesus. He came to I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he child can face uncertain days because Christ lives, because he lives, I can face tomorrow because he Life is worth
God bless you this Easter as you're with your families, and I just trust that the joy of the Lord will be yours and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ will be very real to you today. Keep in mind that we're available through our website. Uh, you can call the church and leave a message. If no one answers, we will follow up, um, and we would love to help you. If you need assistance, uh, if there's struggles going on in your home and you need counsel or help, please be sure and contact our pastoral staff. God bless you. Have a wonderful day together celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ.